Hello, you're listening to Insurance Covered, the podcast that examines and explains the inner workings of the insurance industry. My name is Peter Mansfield. I'm a partner of the law firm RPC, and in each episode, I will discuss an aspect of the insurance market for the leading individual from the insurance world. And today, my guest is Steve Ray, and our topic will be the role of the insurance broker. Steve spent 15 years as a management consultant at McCabot Ray, but has spent the last 13 years at Howden's, including its predecessors where he is currently a director in the Professional Indemnity Unit. Steve, your LinkedIn profile does not say living legend, but it really should do. So Steve, living legend, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, Peter. Um, before we start discussing the role of uh, insurance broking and how it, what role it plays in the wider insurance market, uh, can you tell us a bit more about kind of, well, McCabot Ray, but also how you ended up in insurance in the first place? So for people of my generation, very few people chose to end up in the insurance market. We sort of fell in somewhat by mistake. Um, I started uh, life in the insurance market in the 80s. I had a succession of jobs within one reinsurance broker where I ended up uh, managing a technical teams. And I did that through uh, much of the 80s. Uh, had quite a good time, probably with the wrong broker. And a chance encounter with an old friend uh, over a curry in the late 80s led to me joining a management consultancy group where they'd done quite a lot of work with insurance companies. I spent a couple of years with that group and we had a really, really successful time. The individuals that they brought in uh, with the insurance expertise, we did actually have a fantastic time. In, um, and after a couple of years, a couple of my colleagues and I went to the CEO and said, you know, we're having a great time. You keep congratulating us, um, saying well done and everything else. What are the chances down the line of having some equity in the business? And in no uncertain terms, he told us that that was not going to be available. <laughs> so we, we had another go in terms of, you know, what, what sort of bonus structure could we end up with? And um, still that didn't go down well. So two of us resigned to set up McCabot Ray. As a specialist management consultancy business, uh, to operate specifically um, helping clients look at their processes, their operational processes and procedures in what we considered to be a very archaic time, um, so, you know, sort of setup. So, so when you say clients, that, that's so our insurance, clients, yeah, insurance so the, based. The clients that we had were mostly large Lloyds brokers and some specialist London market insurers. So, They were part of bigger groups, but they were the activities doing the sort of global business in London. So so we did did that for a number of years. I had a terrific time, actually. Had some great clients, had some great experiences. Um, And, you know, over the course of the time, actually, we had a a really difficult sort of end to our existence because we were finding we were working for PLCs. And when the CEO was saying, I need something on my annual report to say, what I'm doing about something. You know, it's a small specialist management consultancy group. They didn't want our name in there. And so we kept losing contracts to McKinsey's and PwC and things. And we found that really difficult. And uh, hence I came back into the insurance market with what was Windsor's, which was then taken over in 2012 by Howden's. Um, But effectively, I've been doing the same job um, since 2006 with a with a specialist insurance broker um, looking after professional indemnity insurance uh, risks. So that brings us on to 
the topic for today, Indeed. insurance broking and, yeah. and, and the role of the insurance broker. And um, you may or may not be interested to know that insurance broker was a regulated term back in 1977, the Insurance Brokers Registration Act. Indeed. But that was repealed in 2001, which means that there is now no statutory definition for insurance broker. So how would you, if you were a statute, Steve, how would you define insurance broking? So my view is that, you know, obviously we're the, in most of the activities that we undertake, we're the agent of the insured. So we're looking out for our client's best interests. But obviously we're also the middleman between the, the insurer and our client. And we're out there trying to find the most suitable insurer for a particular client. We're looking at obviously a range of things in terms of the best policy coverage so that the breadth of the coverage in there is also as important as the as the premium to be paid. Um, you know, whether there are any onerous conditions in there, um, what the excess structure looks like and everything else. And we're also look we're also looking to marry, you know, like-minded individuals. So if we look, for example, at a large solicitor's practice, um, we work with them closely to look at also, you know, where is a good fit for them in terms of the insurance market. And we work very closely, and I think most brokers do, to try and get that relationship and sort of a three-way arrangement so that everybody understands where they sit in the, in the, in the jigsaw. Okay, so the, your role then would, because often many people would think that a broker's role is simply to make sure that a client gets an insurance policy. Indeed. But what you're saying is it's a lot more than that. There's a many yeah. value-added... So if we, if we rewind slightly, so if we go back to the mid-80s and everything, you would find that every insurance transaction, pretty well every insurance transaction, had an insurance broker somewhere in the chain. Um, and I remember clearly the advent of direct line so your ability to cut out the broker relationship as a motor policyholder and phone through to an insurer and say, this is who I am, this is what I'm looking to insure. And Direct Line obviously saved a lot of money. So they were very, a very efficient processor of information and also a more you know, financially aware organization. And I, I was, um, at the time, I used to know a couple of guys in, in Lloyd's syndicates and a lot of Lloyd's syndicates were very heavily into the motor market. And I remember a guy, I should probably not mention the Lloyd's syndicate by name, but he said to me, direct line, not a threat. Nobody will buy insurance over the telephone. When I tell you that 10 years later, he said that the internet wasn't a threat to household clients <laughs> insurance. You can see that perhaps he was, you know, was consistently poor on this. <laughs> so, you know, there are types of risk that lend themselves um, to, you know, less of a need for a broker. So if you, if you have, if we take a motor, for example, if you have a fleet of luxury cars and there's some really high value aged Ferraris that you're not going to drive around in, you're not going to phone direct line or, you know, you're not going to get on the Admiral multi-car deal or whatever else. You'll still need to go to a broker and say, you know, look, this car is worth a lot of money. You know, what do I need to do? Who do I need to be paired up with? Because you don't want to be paying, you know, hundreds of thousands of pounds premium. And the specialist brokers will still find a home for people with car collections and things. Um, but in our day-to-day -day life, you know, we are working mostly with professional clients. Um, 
when we look at the future and we're trying to work out whether there's any sort of homogeneity about the work that we're undertaking, would somebody be able to do a, a direct line style response into, into that area? Um, it's not impossible, but there are so many elements that one would have to build into an algorithm that would allow you to get to a a quote or a differentiated quote, uh, depending on how the individual fills in the proposal form online. Uh, I think it's still some way off. But I mean, as we see some of the artificial intelligence coming in, you know, there is obviously a risk that some of these things will change. And um, as you know, the the, the blueprint document for the the revolution within Lloyd's and kind of modernisation of Lloyd's Talks about that a lot, doesn't it? Yes. The, the increased use of AI, increased use of technology, mm. and getting to a situation where some claims may not be touched at all um, by um, by human hand, indeed, uh, and presumably on on the, the the placing of risk as well. Of course, yeah. So, I mean, when I was talking earlier about Lloyd's in the late eighties and everything else, and when you looked at the way that business was transacted. It was crying out for um, a bit of a change back then, you know, to try and remove some of the more mundane processes. Clearly, it's ridiculous to have Lloyd's brokers wandering around the London insurance market with a bag full of papers to get a change of name endorsement done, you know, physically having to see an underwriter to have somebody sign that is is clearly bonkers. I was um, involved in 1988 1989 in a working party to look at electronic trading and the project sponsor who was a you know very savvy IT professional um, had spotted immediately there was a problem with what they were trying to deliver and he had um, if if your listeners can understand what an overhead projector was with an acetate <laughs> on it rather than a PowerPoint slide. Let's explain that to the youngsters. Uh, yes, <laughs> maybe we could add a little sideline in there somewhere. But basically, he had this rather lovely um, slide which he'd put up on the wall, and it had a glass of red wine and a picture of a steak and chips. And his tag was that when a computer could buy an underwriter, steak and chips and a glass of red wine, then the broker's role would be redundant. And I saw the gentleman concerned about three years ago, and I reminded him about the slide, and he said, I'm still using it now. But he said, (laughs) obviously, it's updated to PowerPoint. It's a much prettier picture. Um, So, you know, there has been a move for 30 years to try and get some automation into the process and to cut out some of the more mundane tasks. Um, but the human but, element is always going to be there. Yeah, so, you know, I think it's it's really important that we try and remove as much as possible for the things that actually don't need to be done face-to-face. I talk to my uh, broken colleagues now who do a lot of work online. They don't see the underwriters as, of, as often. But the really important bit and the bit that differentiates is the human element of presenting a risk to an underwriter. Um, you know, for a more complex risk, you really have to get into the nuances of, you know, What's the history of this risk? What what attitude does the client have? Can we can we demonstrate how much work they've done around the risk and compliance infrastructure? But if that is done less and less, yeah. is that a skill that is going to be lost amongst the broking fraternity? So, I I think about this a lot. I've got um, two daughters; they're both in the insurance market. Uh, they're in the late twenties. You know, I I think what does their what does their future look like? And we also talk to uh, a number of people who come in for interviews and say, you know, 
I really like the idea of what you do here, but what does this look like in the future? And my own view is that there will be a bigger push to, you know, having probably fewer specialists, um, but working on more complex risks. I think we'll probably see a bit of a reduction in broker numbers. There is quite a lot of M&A activity in play in, in our sector at the moment. Um, but, you know, I think there's a really good, there's a really good opportunity for people going forward, but there will be increased spe- specialization. Um, I can see a lot of um, links between certain jobs which are currently split, where people will take on more responsibility for the overall relationship um, and do everything within a small team, perhaps, uh, rather than, you know, the current structure in most broking houses is to have relatively large teams looking after particular sectors. I can see that that might change into, you know, smaller teams looking after a number of large clients and being total service centres for, for, for those individual clients. And, and this is you know, this is a future for for the big players, um, and as what I'm sure we'll come on to see that there'll always be a there'll always be a role for the broker in complex ones. Yeah. But where's that going to leave the the high street brokers, the, the the producing brokers out there in villages and towns around the country? Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, um, you know, some London market brokers rely on a wholesale relationship where insurance brokers in the region send more complex cases into London to access markets that they are unable to at present. There there will always be, in to my mind, that the requirement for a specialist firm in the northeast to look after bigger specialist firms around them, but they may just be for most of the insurances, they may just be a conduit into into another area. We've seen in the past, like in many industries, you know, where individual companies go out on a spree to say, you know, we need to be a retail presence in every part of the UK. And then 10 years later, they go, no, that actually hasn't worked quite so well for us. We'll bring in everything back to London. Absolutely. And the um, kind of looking forward a little bit, um, that's part of my research, there are over 3,000 insurance brokers, apparently, in the, in the UK, which suggests that it's an industry that's not exactly threatened at the moment. It's doing all right. Um, but if broking is to thrive, and you've already touched upon this, if it's to thrive rather than merely survive, how will it need to change? You've, you've touched upon the fact that there might be smaller, more specialist teams. But is, is there anything else? So, I mean... There's a research group called the McTavish Group. I don't know if you're familiar with them. They do a lot of work in the insurance market, and they wrote a paper in the early 2000s, maybe 2003, 2004. Um, and following some research they'd done, they actually found that insurance brokers were really well-trusted advisors by professional firms and, and large corporates. Um, and we looked at that at the time in consultancy world, uh, and spoke to a number of brokers about what they could do to maximize their opportunity within a client relationship. And that is actually looking at um, where claims are emanating from, you know, what, what does good risk management practice look like? Uh, what do insurers really want to know about clients? So proposal forms themselves can be very lengthy, but they don't give an insight into what a business actually looks like. And I see very much that the insurance brokers still have an opportunity to do more um, about, um, you know, working with their clients on a day-to-day basis, not physically day-to-day, but, you know, every yeah. every couple of months, um, helping their clients maybe to look at, you know, where risk 
areas are arising, where claims are coming from and everything else. And maybe going back as the third party external expert to speak to their all their fee earners and everything and say, you know, are you aware of these sort of instances that have arisen? Um, so we talk a lot about, you know, what, what are we seeing in, in terms of trends and everything else? Taking those back out to uh, to clients to explain what's going on, working with their risk and compliance groups to say, you know, okay, it's all very well that you've got this structure in place, but what does it actually mean for the people on the ground? Uh, when when we were consulting, we used to do quite a lot of risk reviews for Lloyd syndicates and insurance companies to get under the skin of larger corporate clients. And one of the things that we used to look at was to a sort of three-way test. So we'd look at the individual firm's policy, you know, to what extent had they, in the old days, written down an operational procedures manual? How clear was it what people were allowed to do and not allowed to do? And then actually speak to the individual people within that organization about their understanding of what they were allowed to do. Did the two marry up? And then if you looked at the file, could you see that the three things worked together? And we saw it as a little bit of an opportunity on a very you know short and sharp review to say, okay, your policy makes absolute sense that people understand most of it, but not all of it, but actually it isn't translated into the actual practices. So if, so if there was one quality, yeah. one quality that lifts a good broker to being a great broker, what would it be? I think about this quite a lot because I work with some really good people and have done over the years. And actually I work with a really interesting mix of people. So we have, we have, I see in, in the best organizations I've been in, uh, the team ethos that is made up of, you know, somebody who can manage a relationship. So, you know, they can be, um, they can talk to a board, uh, they can deliver good and bad news, but that you need to be working if you're that individual with somebody who's a real trader so they can go out and get a deal. You need to work with somebody who's really technically proficient. You know, our client wants to do something unusual. How's the policy wording going to respond to that? But the best brokers are those that work collaboratively and they bring the skills of the individuals together. Because actually, I don't think, um, I've not really seen anybody that does every bit of that process well. Some think they do. You know, we've got some very, very interesting people who think they can do anything. Um, but actually, if you boil it down, the, it, working with the complementary skills is the key to getting a good relationship. So the way to move from being good to great is by being part of a great team. Very, very probably. So the, do you remember David Rowland, who was the CEO at, mm-hmm. at Lloyd's? Um, he put an amazing quote out when, when he retired from Lloyd's. And, then somebody was congratulating him on the amazing work that, uh, that he'd done through R&R. And he said, I'm very lucky to have incredibly talented people working with me. I'm just heading it up. And, you know, to, to an extent, that's, that's one of those things that, you know, makes these things drive. And what, what, I'm, what I'm interested in at the moment is that because it's very difficult to set up a new business these days in a lot of areas, because there's a lot of regulatory and compliance work that needs to be done, Historically, when brokers have gone on major acquisition trails, teams have lifted out to start on their own. And that's quite difficult at the moment. So we're looking all the time, aren't we, when, in my opinion, to, you know, to attach ourselves to somebody who's got a really good vision and an entrepreneurial flair. And we can sit behind those people to ensure that those things that they think are important can actually be delivered. 
So you, you obviously think that broking has a future. Yeah. Um, so is it a career that you'd recommend to a young person if they asked you? Right. So I um, I had a um, a favour from um, from a good friend last summer. So I took his son in for a couple of weeks' work experience. He was a very bright guy. I really liked him. He really enjoyed working with us. And at the end of it, he said to his father, who told me that actually, although it was terrific fun, what he was watching, didn't, he didn't think was uh, something for the long term. So his father said to me, so how would you have responded to that? And I said, you know, he's picked up on some really important things. And, you know, there are, there are implications um, for the role that we undertake today. Um, in the use of technology and everything else. Um, but, you know, for the right people with the right skills, I think there's a really good future. And it's quite interesting because I I did my economics A-level in 1976. Um, hot year, hot yeah, summer. Hot, hot, very hot summer, very good year. And one of the things that we were looking at in terms of economic theory then was that what will the working week look like within 20 years? So by the mid-90s, because... The idea was that the robots that were working in the, you know, on production lines and everything else would become, you would take over virtually everything. But that, you know, the working week as we understood it would be would be gone forever. So if you say that that was seventy six, and they were saying within twenty years, we, how were we going to spend our leisure time because we'd be working three days a week? Uh, and I'm thinking that well, you know, <laughs> here we are, uh, you know, many years later, and. Actually, I am having that conversation with people now about, you know, what is the working week going to look like when we move to four days a week, but, you know, not three days a week. Um, I think, uh, you know, I think everything where an individual can bring some personality and some ability to understand what the client's looking for and being able to arrange something that's suitable for them and then keeping them up to date with that, it's a very difficult thing to replicate. And finally, um, from your years of experience, well, what bit of advice would you give to someone starting out in the insurance industry? That's really good. That's a really good question. And a little left field. I wasn't sort of expecting you to go there. I think it's, um, it's really important that um, somebody who is keen and enthusiastic and we're, we're finding, you know, we're getting really good quality people into our business, really good degrees um, I think it's important to go on and do some additional training. So getting your insurance qualifications is a differentiator still. Although they're very general, it does help the understanding of what one's trying to, to portray. Um, but I think it's all about trying to find your niche. So don't allow yourself to be shoehorned into an area where, you know, your skills aren't actually best utilized. So, you know, if you're really outgoing an individual and they try to push you into being a specialist policy wordings technician, that's probably not going to suit you for the long term. If you like working in small teams and everything else, don't find yourself in a mega broker where, you know, you've got layers and layers of management. So find your right fit. Find a, a business um, that, you know, makes you happy. It, you know, we're looking at a lot of individuals who are starting out in their careers now who will probably have to work for quite a long time. As you know, people, uh, you know, the cost of an aging population will obviously uh, mean there will be quite have a lot to look of after us. They'll have to look after us. I was trying to steer away from that, but <laughs> that's the general view. Yeah. Um, so, you know, find something that makes you happy. Find something that makes you want to be in work the next day. Um, I, I, I have very little, very little truck with people who go, you know, I've really hated here. You know, if you really hate it here, 
don't be here. Try and find something that makes you happy. Well, that sounds like wise advice to me. So thanks, Steve. You made me happy. So thank you very much. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Insurance Covered. Insurance Covered is an RPC production, recorded and edited by Mary Mitchell. We couldn't do this without Joe Burgess, Sean Alberts, and of course, our guests. Thanks to them. If you want to be a guest or have any feedback for us, please contact us on podcast at rpc.co.uk. Finally, please rate, share and review it. And please subscribe so that you can ensure receiving future episodes.